When uh, I was younger, my parents were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And so I lived in the highlands, beautiful highlands of Papua New Guinea, where it was like spring every day. It was really magic. We lived in Mount Hagen at uh, about 5,000 feet. I don't know what that is in metres. Um, but it was just glorious. And uh, the local high school that I went to, International High School, had a bushwalking club that I joined, uh, led by one of the teachers. And uh, one of the skills I picked up was navigating with a map and a compass. Can you believe it? This was in the days before GPS and smartphones. Do any of you remember carrying around a map book in your car? It wasn't that long ago. Can you still buy them? You can? How quaint. Well, the school was pretty small, and so we decided we would take all the uh, students out on a hiking trip. And I was one of the team leaders, so I pull out my map and compass, and if you're uh, not too far-sighted, you can probably see where this is going. They probably should have picked a better guide. <laughs> we were doing okay until we weren't. I don't know what happened. I think we picked up a pig trail or something like that and wound up somewhere. Um, you know, just the reality is some maps make no sense at all. Anyway, I was very embarrassed and not a little bit relieved when one of the teachers came and found us, got us back on track and we all made it safely home. Now, uh, my memory anyway of the mountains of the mountain valleys of PNG uh, that they were very kind to us. The weather was very temperate and there's plenty of water. But many mountains, many hiking trails, particularly in our country, are not so kind. And our headlines have been filled recently with lots of stories of people who have gone out into the bush or hiking and tragically haven't made it back at all or have barely made it back by the skin of their teeth if they're lucky. Well, just as we can get physically lost, of course, many people get spiritually lost as well. And, you know, the consequences of being spiritually lost are far more devastating than even a young backpacker getting caught in the Tasmanian wilderness. Because what, what can be worse than, than dying of exposure by yourself? Well, I want to put it to you this morning. Dying without a saviour. The story of the Bible is that we're all lost. We're all alienated from God. And we're destined for a godless eternity in a spiritual wilderness or wasteland. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that a day would come when he would return. And you know what he said? All the peoples of earth would mourn at his coming because he would come, he would call his elect to himself but he would judge the world. And in Matthew 25, he said, it's a day when the righteous will enter into his glory and the unrighteous go into eternal punishment. And so in Romans 6.23, Paul sums up our predicament like this. He says, it's a terrifying statement, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, and who among us has not sinned? We're continuing our series called Why Pray? Why Pray? 
We pray because lost people need a saviour. Now, as I said uh, when I started here, this is an uncomfortable topic this morning. Um, Maybe a bit controversial for some people. I actually do not like this topic. I hate the doctrine of hell. We look at our friends and family who are good people and we wonder how could God cast them out? How could God send them into such a terrifying eternity? How could a loving God countenance such a place as hell? And in today's culture, it seems cruel, it's judgmental, it's seen as exclusionary, even bigoted and primitive to believe in hell. Well, some people try to make the Bible say that everyone gets into heaven. But, you know, as I read the Bible, I see neither Jesus nor the rest of the Bible will allow that, unless you ignore the parts you don't like. And that's a terrible way to read the Bible and arrive at any kind of truth. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus. In uh, Matthew 29, 30, he described the final destination of those who don't know the Father, of the unrighteous, as a place of darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping in remorse and sorrow, gnashing of teeth in anger and uh, hatred of, the, of God. And in Luke 16, he describes Hades as a place of torment with the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, whether you take the Bible's teaching on hell as literal or metaphorical, Jesus is clear and the Bible is clear. Those who are without Christ are eternally lost. So again, how can a loving, good, kind God send our friends and family to hell when at least by any reasonable standard, they're good people? Or at least they're not bad people. Now, we know that as Christians, none of us cuts the mustard when it comes to God's standard. God is a perfect God. Uh, We all stand guilty before the perfectly just judge of all the earth. So let's lower the bar a little bit this morning. Let's say, God, can you just judge us in a different court? Maybe not the perfect court of heaven. Maybe something a little lower, an earthly court. How, how about uh, the standards of our society today? Can we judge the world by that standard? Can we judge my friends by that standard? Why don't we lower the bar even a little bit more? Can we judge by my standards of goodness? Can we judge my friends by their standards of goodness? Can we do that? Can we lower the bar and make it as easy as possible? For them to be considered acceptable for heaven, to come into your presence. I wonder if that's really going to help. Because you know what? If God's going to judge me by my own standards, I'm still not going to make it. I don't even live up to my own standards. Friends, I'm a hypocrite. 
And I would suggest that many of our loved ones are as well. Speaking as one hypocrite to others, sorry. (laughs) But we all, none of us live up to our own standards, do we? And so do you see the problem? In, uh, In the book of Romans, Paul notes that even apart from God's law, the Gentiles don't even live up to the principles that they purport to hold. None of us is good enough by any standard. Would any of us be comfortable to stand up here today and confess the worst of what we've done or said or thought? And that's just since we woke up this morning. It's not just what we do that's the problem. It's who we are. It's our heart. And this is the story of the fall that we all are corrupted. Made in the image of God. Glorious, but corrupted. Like bad apples in a barrel that make the rest of the barrel bad, there's no place for bad apples in heaven. I mean, do we really want bad apples in a perfect fruit bowl? They get tossed out of mine. Except that God is in the business of making bad apples good. Only he has the power to do that. It's only by his grace and power that we can be here today calling him father. It's only by faith in his goodness and power that we can hope to stand before him in eternity. Not trembling in fear at his judgment but trembling in anticipation at fellowship with him and what he has for us. We're helpless. We need a saviour. And the saviour found us. And I want to remind us all again of what I think nearly all of us know, that story of the cross where Jesus, the perfect son of God, died on the cross in our place, taking our sin and our guilt and our punishment on himself so that we can be made right with God and have his righteousness. And he pours out his Holy Spirit on us so that we can be recreated in his likeness. And we move towards that day when we will be finally perfected, putting all sin behind us. when we see him, we'll be like him. So why pray? We pray because the lost people in your life, the lost people in my life, our family, our relatives, our friends and our colleagues, they need that same saviour that you and I have found. The bad news is if we don't know Jesus We're going to a godless eternity. We're going to hell. They're going to hell. The good news is that God loves them far more than you or I do. And he wants to welcome them home. You know, on multiple occasions when the Israelites were on their way out of Egypt into the promised land, they rebelled against God. 
Can you imagine the story of Mount Sinai? The Israelites are looking up. They're looking up. As the Bible presents it, they are literally looking up into heaven. God is up there. They can only see us. I can't remember how it goes. I I should have looked at this more carefully. I'm I'm, um, being extemporaneous here. But they look literally, the, the image is they're literally looking up into heaven. Moses is essentially going up into heaven when he goes up the mountain. And what do the people do? They make a golden calf and worship that instead. Isn't that so like us? And so many times they do this, they do that, they do the other thing. And God just says to Moses, I'm done with them. I'm wiping them out. I'm starting again with you. And what does Moses do? He stands in the gap. He says, no, God, don't do it. And God relents and perseveres with this people. And he forges them into something. Will we stand in the gap for the lost? You might ask, and I think this is a question we have to face, if God loves them so much, why doesn't he just let them in anyway then? Why doesn't he just save them? Well, you know, the thing is that just doesn't seem to be the way that God does it. In fact, we're told very rarely to pray directly for the salvation of the lost. Did you know that? I can only think of one particular place that talks about praying for the lost. And that's Paul in Romans 10.1, where he says he prays for his Israelite brothers and sisters that they be saved. But I'm not aware of anywhere else in the Bible that tells us, that commands us, that urges us specifically to pray for the lost. We obviously have the examples of intercession like Moses. First John chapter 5, verses 14 to 15, promise that wherever we pray according to God's will, he hears us and will answer. So praying for salvation is included in that, but it's not specifically encouraged. So what does it say? How should we pray for the lost if we're going to pray according to the Bible? Well, in the last few weeks, we've considered a few things. We've considered that we're in a spiritual battle. And uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to the gospel. Last week, Fletcher was talking about how the devil is a deceiver. And so perhaps we need to start there. Praying for our loved ones, that their eyes, the, the, the um, deception of the enemy will be removed from their eyes, that their eyes will be opened to the truth of the gospel. We've also considered how God uses people to achieve his purposes. What does Jesus say to pray for? He said, pray for harvesters to go out into the harvest field. The harvest is actually ready. It's ripe. We just need people to go out and gather it in. That's in Matthew 9, 37 to 38. Paul wanted prayer for open doors to preach the gospel in Colossians 4, 3. He's like, there's an opportunity here just Please pray that God opens it. Nothing hinders me from preaching the gospel. And in fact, in Ephesians, he says, pray for me as I preach the gospel, that I'll have the words to say that will convince people. 
And so we can pray for our loved ones. We can pray for our city that God will bring a witness to them, an evangelist into their life. And maybe even that you'll be that evangelist. Will we pray for the lost? Will we pray for our lost friends and family? Our lost neighbours and colleagues? Our lost city? Because sooner or later, a day of judgment will come. Whether it's this side of eternity when Jesus returns or the other side when we go to face him. And the only thing that can save us on that day is the grace of God in Christ taken hold of by faith. You see, I think this is the other thing. We have choices in this life and God honours our choices. And one of the choices we have is whether we accept him or not, assuming we've heard the gospel. We need to take hold of it by faith. That goes for you and for me. And that goes for them as well. We're all in the same boat. You know, someone said Christians are just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So we pray. We pray because lost people need Jesus. They need God to show them the truth. And that seems to happen through the preaching of the gospel, through witness. Pray that they will hear the gospel and receive it. Pray that the veil will be removed from their eyes so that they can see Jesus and believe. Pray that the devil will not snatch the seed. Remember the the story of the sower? And Jesus says one of the things that happens when the gospel is sown is the devil just comes and snatches it straight away before it has a, a, a chance to germinate in people's hearts. Pray that that won't happen. When the gospel comes to your friends and family, pray for evangelists to proclaim the gospel. Friends, pray for your pastors, Fletcher and myself, that we can do the work of an evangelist. Because I don't think either of us are natural evangelists. But we do love to tell people about Jesus all the same. Pray that God will enable you to share the gospel with your friends. Friends, why pray? You pray because lost people need Jesus. And in our city and in our world, why don't we do that now?